Welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Missio Day is a family of Jesus, joining God as he makes all things new in Chicago. Check us out online at missiodaychicago.com. So I'm really excited to be here in this part of our Old Testament summer, now in the life of King David. A couple reasons that I was really excited to get into this part of our series. As Jade mentioned in week one, there is so much ink spent on this one person. When you take this life in proportion to scripture and how many verses are about the life of King David, we were cruising through the judges. Do you guys remember that? One after another another. It was just cyclical. Same thing started happening when we started going through the kings in the Old Testament. Some of them only get like half a chapter or a little one this big. We're cruising through these people so fast, and then the pace of the historical books seems to slow down to a snail's pace, just as if to savor the story of the life of King David. It's clearly a very important story to the people of God. Another reason that I love the story of King David is he's one of the few people recorded in the Bible where we get to see their life from youth to death, the whole thing. I didn't look this up or study it, just in my own brain. I was like, I think we've got Moses, David, and Jesus that we get to hear from youth to old age and death uh, and resurrection in one case. But um, it's a very short list. And the reason that I love that fact is that it, that breadth of time allows me at least to sort of see myself in different parts of their whole lived experience. I can relate to different seasons and different moments with my own experiences in my own life. So for those of you who weren't here, week one, Jade took us through the start where David as a youth experienced a very unexpected anointing by the prophet Samuel saying that someday he would be king. And then Jade took us through this moment where this young David, uh, not a king at all yet, goes and defeats Goliath with a slingshot. And what we saw here in this youthful stage of David's life was this purity of heart, this young shepherd's heart. And he's following God's direction and um, gets picked as the youngest and most unexpected of Jesse's sons. In 1 Samuel 16, 7, we hear the Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. I love that for all of time. And we see that coming true in the life of David. We see David actually throughout scripture being referred to repeatedly as a man after God's own heart. So in this first part of his story, we can see that his posture of humility of himself paired with his confidence in the Lord actually leads to incredible boldness and his faith in action. It's a beautiful thing. I see his purity and innocence building a foundation of trust in God. And I was feeling like I could relate to that even over my vacation. The first week of vacation, I went up, my parents live on a lake in Northern Michigan and we went up there and one of the days we did a float down the river. And what that means is no motor, no paddle, no nothing. You get yourself on a flotation device at one end of the river and you let the river just take you at its pace down the entirety. And then when you come out into the lake, you call dad on the cell phone and he comes and picks you up with a boat because you'll never get back to the lake house otherwise. Anyway, we're floating down the river in the most innocent, pure pace of life. And there's nobody around us. We were watching river otter swim and play. We were looking 
looking at turtles sunbathing on logs on the side of the river, the younger kids started to get really bored. But I was soaking it in. Like this innocence and purity of the scene just made me feel so in awe of the goodness of our God. And I felt that, and I was thinking about that, knowing that you all were talking about that stage in the life of David. Week two, we went to our little cabin in the woods outside of the city. It's this old little literal 40-year-old log cabin, and this huge storm came through. It was literally shaking the forest around us, and I stood out on the screen porch, and I was just at awe of the power of our God in that moment of such pure rawness of nature. I loved it. So I can relate to these experiences as a human, and that's part of the way I love the story of David. Anyway, after that, we hear that not only does David defeat Goliath, but he goes on to many other victories as well. In 1 Samuel 18, 14, it's recorded, in everything he did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. In week two, Sam took us through the next stage of this lived experience of David. King Saul is very jealous. He becomes very jealous. And we see this season where David literally has to go, knowing that he's anointed to be king someday, he has to go and hide in caves to escape the wrath of Saul. And as Sam pointed out, unlike Saul, who was obsessed with power and control, David has learned the art of surrender and trust even in such a dark time of his life. He walked us through, Sam walked us through the proof in David's poetry in the Psalms. He had this deep intimacy in his relationship with the Lord built from seasons of solitude and silence, and it allowed him to have an openness and expressiveness and honesty in his intimate relationship with his God, good and bad. But he could always land in gratitude because over time that trust had been built, even when he was forced to wait in caves with an enemy in hot pursuit. I love reading the honesty, the rawness, and the intimacy of David's prayers as recorded in the Psalms. A few years ago, I actually started writing my own Psalms. I mean, they're not like Holy Scripture or anything, I assure you. But I really encourage you guys to try the same. Just let out that rawness and that intimacy. Cry out to the Lord with the same freedom that David expressed. Let's look at Psalm 22 quickly. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? David's writing that from the caves. Does it sound familiar? It's the same psalm that Jesus quotes from the cross. He, Jesus is quoting that agony that David first penned, but ends in a place in, later in the psalm in 19b where he says, you, God, are my strength. Come quickly to help me. These timeless experiences we read about in the life of David, and we see ourselves in his story. So today... Here's where we are. Week three, he now finally steps into his promised kingship. Let me take just a second to catch us up from the caves and the agony to where we are today. It is not a clear or quick or easy transition. It is messy. So paraphrase, consolidate, cliff notes version of this. Saul's anger never resolves. He never finds peace with the truth that David is the one who's going to be the next king. He is actually, Saul is critically injured in a battle and he chooses to fall on his own sword in order to avoid getting abused by his captors. And David mourns his death. After all of that crying out to God for safety from my enemies, after all of that, how can we reconcile that? But this is what I mean about 
relating to this real life experience. I was um, meeting with a friend a little while ago who was grieving the loss of her father while simultaneously trying to work through the anger of having grown up in an abusive household. It was a both and. And I, in my mind, was like, I don't even know how you can grieve this way and anger to, and, but it was happening in front of me. And I see that in the life of David. It's such a real human emotion, this messiness, this both and. So anyway, after he mourns the death of Saul, we see that David is indeed anointed as king over Judah. So quick bit, the nation of God, the people of Israel have broken along the way into two different nations, Judah and Israel. Okay. So First, King David is anointed as king over Judah, but there is still division with the house of Saul, who's kind of feeling like, we think it should stay in the family, this kingship. We're not so sure that it should go somewhere else. And so there's this tension that rises. In 2 Samuel 3.1, we read, the war between the house of Saul and the house of David lasted a long time. David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. And this whole period mentioned or referred to here, you guys, it's so messy. There are battles conspiracies, murder, deceit. It is a messy piece of recorded history in trying to establish a kingship. But then this amazing sense of resolution to the discord seems to set in in the passage where we're in today. So King David then is next anointed also as king over Israel in um, 2 Samuel 5.3. He then conquers Jerusalem, which was really a wise spot for him to go. It's relatively neutral to both parties, both nations who had been at odds, and it was on a hill. And so it was like a very good uh, defendable location. He's picks this great location and he conquers Jerusalem. And this seems to be that moment we've been waiting for as a nation and as readers, the moment we've been waiting for since he was anointed as a young shepherd boy. Second Samuel 5:12. Then David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. And so one commentator says it this way: this climax in the account of David's rise suggests the theological and historical significance of what David accomplished. He gave Israel the rest or security in Canaan, where Jerusalem is located, that Moses had foretold succeeding where all those earlier rulers had failed. All the judges, all the kings before him, you get this sense of the big deal, all the promises that have been coming through Moses, through Abraham, everything. It's happening. We finally have a good king and the anointing of God is clearly upon him. We see in this section hints of what Jade referenced again in the first week about David serving as kind of a foreshadow to Jesus, the Messiah. Noticing a few of these themes this week, let's look at these. Number one, in the story of David, we see this as a moment of major reconciliation where there has been discord. The reconciliation of Judah and Israel who have been divided and they are now reconciled. That is a foretaste of the greater reconciliation that we experience between God and humanity in Jesus as the Messiah. 
The second theme we see is that of kingdom. In this moment, David establishes a kingdom physically here in Jerusalem or Mount Zion, as it's referred to for the first time in this passage or in this section of scripture. Um, So those are the same thing, Mount Zion, Zion and Jerusalem. Um, So here we have David establishing a kingdom, a sense of permanence where we are focused on God's rule and reign, lived out under David's leadership, but it's about God's rule and reign. Of course, that as a foretaste of the kingdom that Jesus proclaimed, that he ushered in, the new kingdom of God in our midst through the people of God. That theme of kingdom is a really big one between both David and Jesus. And of course, the promise to David from God is delivered from the uh, prophet Nathan that the Messiah, the promised one, would come through David's family line. This is known as the Davidic covenant. It's another covenant promise that God made. Remember, he made one to Abraham. He made one with Moses. Now with David, it's God's promise. And I'm going to read a part of it here from 2 Samuel 7. The Lord declares to you, David, that the Lord will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I, God, will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom, Messiah, forever. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So that is a part of the same piece of the stage of the life of David. So what's the timeless experience that we see here in this phase of David's life? We went from the unexpected anointing of a shepherd boy to the unexpected victory over Goliath, from being this one to soothe Saul in his madness to being chased into caves and hiding, now from political and family chaos to this moment on Mount Zion that Tyler read from today. This is the mountaintop experience. Those ones that we've all felt before, that culmination of all the waiting, of all the work, of all the wondering, the mountaintop experience, the moment when you get the letter of acceptance from the college of your dreams, the trophy at the end of your sports season, the positive pregnancy test after months of waiting, the job offer that you have worked tirelessly to get, the wedding kiss, the big promotion, your offer being accepted on the condo, Uh, The clear PET scan after months of chemo, the mountaintop, everything we've been waiting for leads to this moment. You have no idea what mess is going to come in a little bit. And you're not thinking about that now because all of those scenarios have messy stuff that's still going to happen later. But in this moment, in this moment, all feels right. All the waiting and the wondering and the work. You are in your mountaintop moment. Now, mind you, in David's case, the waiting was very long and he had something that we don't always have, which is a promise from God that it would come to pass. He had that tucked in his pocket. We don't always get those in those scenarios, I was saying, but we feel that sense of all the things coming together in those themes, right? The reconciliation as the people of God, the establishment of a kingdom 
to have our worship on in Zion. And then we, we, um, we don't quite have the promise of the Messiah. The, the Messiah is also known as Emmanuel, God with us. That promise was that God would always be with us through Christ. So hear this, the, the, the theme here is, is the presence of the ark being brought. God's presence is with us. We are no longer exiles and wanderers worshiping from tents. There's a sense of permanence of God's presence here with us. Second Samuel 6, wearing the linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. His prayers, including all the ones we have recorded in the book of Psalms, they've been answered and he worships without abandon. This outpouring of expressive joy and gratitude. And I know I don't need to preach a sermon to this particular crew of people about the delight of dancing. First of all, I can't help, this is just an aside, I can't help but hear this passage in the voice of Kevin Bacon because I grew up in the era of Footloose. Do you remember when he stands before the school council, thank you, and says that we should have a dance because David danced before the Lord with all his might. I still remember that. So anyway, we, I don't need to convince you guys to have a dance. I've been to some birthday parties and some weddings with you all. Y'all cut up a rug. You are expressive in your dance. What I want to observe here is that at the mountaintop moment, at the realization of prayers answered, David expresses gratitude with such boldness and he is not ashamed. His wife is, she's mortified. It is undignified what you are doing out there. One of the, um, the resources I was reading says, um, the scrutiny of the Hebrew words used to describe David dancing suggests that it was exuberant, energetic leaping and whirling about, which is apparently undignified, especially because in the historical texts, we have no other recordings of a king acting this way in such a processional victory moment. There's, there, there is no other way. This is a one in a kind kind of moment. And David says, I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. What other scenes of expressive gratitude do we see that I think of in this as a shared experience? I think of that moment recorded in John 21 when Peter notices that it's Jesus standing on the shore and he's in a boat and so he jumps out of the boat. Have you ever run in water? Like the boat goes faster than Peter does, but he can't even stop. He's so excited. He just jumps out of the boat to get to Jesus as fast as possible. He is unashamed in his excitement. In Luke 7, we see a sinful woman entering a fair house already that is like bold and not socially acceptable right and she stands at the feet of Jesus weeping she wets his feet with her tears and wipes them with her hair she kisses them and pours perfume on them and Jesus honors her bold unashamed expression of gratitude and worship then in John 12 which I believe we can disagree on this I believe to be a separate anointing where Jesus is sitting with his close friends uh, Mary Martha and Lazarus at their table in Bethany and Mary whom he loves just in who loves him she kneels at his feet and anoints him with expensive nard in an unexpected act of gratuitous worship if there is such a thing it's uh, 
everyone's just like, what is, what, this is too much. And Jesus says, leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. She is bold. She's unashamed in her adoration. These expressive moments are so beautiful to me. And I hear in uh, Romans 1.16, when Paul writes to the church in Rome, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first the Jew and the Gentile. So for Paul, the cultural shock was this concept that Jews and Gentiles could be reconciled in Christ. And he is so socially unacceptable to some by what he's doing unabashedly that they beat him up, they kick him out of town, they throw him in jail, but he is not ashamed. And so we has, he has this message of reconciliation, of kingdom, of Messiah. It's all come true, and he preaches and praises with expressive boldness, unashamed, like David, like Mary, like Peter, and the sinful woman. And when I was thinking about that, that, that expressiveness in a mountaintop moment, that stopping everything to just go over the top in gratuitous worship, I was thinking, how do we even think of this or apply this or, or do anything except just delight in this story? Because it's easy for me to delight in this scene. I love it. I think it looks like so much fun to enter Jerusalem in this moment that's a culmination of all that Old Testament stories have been waiting for, in a sense. And I was thinking, how do we take this as more than delight and kind of ponder it a little bit? And I have two thoughts to share with you. One is an encouragement and one is a question. The first one is the encouragement. Monsieur Day, I encourage you to notice the mountaintops and just stay there a little while to praise. Don't rush by too quickly. I did that this week. That's why I noticed this and felt like I needed it as an encouragement to myself and then to you. In our family, we have a certain high schooler. Just stop for a second and think of your years in high school. There's a lot of feelings there, right? Well, we had some not so great ones going on for a little while and we prayed and prayed for resolution. And you guys, this week we got the report from Forrest, who is now an upperclassman, that they had the most amazing first week of junior year ever. And I was like, what? But you know what? I was like, honey, that's great. And I moved on and I went and picked up a latte and dropped them off at school and I, until I got home and sat with my quiet time and I was like, that was the biggest moment of praise. And I was just going to move right past it. It's like, that's great, hon. We're throwing a dinner party tonight in celebration of a mountaintop moment of a good first week of junior year. And so just, I was taught, I was reminded, we can be so fast to move to the next thing because that's what the world around us is telling us that we have to keep up and keep going. And constant striving towards the next thing is, it's good, but we can miss the mountaintops of answered prayer all around us. A couple of weeks ago, I was out uh, to coffee with Julie Jemison, who reminded me and helping me to establish how we might frame this Team 31 that I was telling you about, the prayer ministry. And she was sitting there just speaking this wisdom about the importance as a community to stop and also report on and celebrate the answered prayers along the way. And I sat there and just received like the wisdom of King David coming through her voice across the coffee table to me. It's so, so true. Pause to celebrate the mountaintops or the hilltops, whatever size they are, they're worth the pause. They're worth a moment to just dance in the moment. Gratitude, expressiveness, boldly naming the answer of prayer before God and to others. 
What's good, which gets me to my second thing, beyond the encouragement, and it's to the question, what does it mean for us to share these moments? What does it mean for us to not be ashamed of this gospel message of reconciliation and kingdom come? What does it mean? Celebrate for our worship processionals, speak the goodness of God, race towards Jesus, sit at his feet, unashamed bold postures of worship and gratitude. I think there are certain ways that are a little easier within the church community. This is just me observing what I think to you. So for example, this night of worship on Wednesday night, if this isn't a posture that you're used to having to just pause out of your schedule to just worship and praise, I encourage you to take advantage of spaces like that. Maybe it's going to a worship night. Maybe it's learning to practice these uh, tellings of story unashamedly with your GC community or while you're baking cookies at Breakthrough Ministry or wherever it is, like speak it. Get in the habit of saying the thing. When you're putting together the Ikea beds this afternoon on Allie's service team, speak stories of mountaintops or hilltops. Share them. Be encouraged with one another. I don't know about you, but if I'm honest, I feel like doing that is easier in those spaces than it is for me in spaces where I don't know how the listeners around me are going to receive what I am saying. I have no idea if they know the Lord or what they think, and then I'm going to sit there and like dance and worship over a moment of great praise and when I get insecure I'm just being honest because I don't know how it will be taken but I hear Paul's words and I need to get back to them I am not ashamed of the gospel this message of reconciliation and kingdom goodness through Christ so sometimes sharing our faith or spreading the gospel you guys sometimes it simply looks like telling a story You don't need to unpack all of scripture that we're learning and reflecting on here in church to share a piece of your story. It's just a piece of your story. People love stories. And it's such an easy way to not be ashamed of the gospel. With David, it looked like this. God promised when I was a forgotten seventh child of Jesse, working out in the fields, my brothers literally didn't even invite me when Samuel came over. Like that's how much nobody even remembered I was there. But God promised me that there was a plan for me. Now look at God's faithfulness. We're here on the mountaintop of Zion. That was him. He was just sharing his story. His came out in dance. What does it look like for us? Maybe it says, you know, I prayed for this a long time and I worried that the waiting was for nothing, but I just feel like this is an answer to my prayers. That's what we're celebrating as a family in our house tonight. Maybe it sounds like I could feel God's comfort even when I was in deep grief. It didn't make my deep grief better. I just knew that God was grieving with me. That might really pique someone's curiosity about how that works. Maybe it sounds like I was really scared, but as I prayed to God, I felt comforted in knowing that God already knew where I was and that I was scared and that he was not surprised by any of it. I mean, stories like that, that you can share from real life situations. David at the mountaintop, we will see next week, mountaintops don't always last. All of those things I named earlier, you know, the college acceptance is great. It's going to get hard. The job, congratulations. Enjoy the accolades. You're going to be up really late working that job some nights. The wedding kiss is awesome. Sometimes marriage takes work that you didn't know was going to take. All of those things, right? We're going to see next week that the mountaintop doesn't always last. But in that moment, he recognized the goodness of God. He responded with bold, expressive gratitude and his example showed unabashed adoration to God. 
And I want us to be encouraged to be people who are in our own ways are faithful to do the same. So I'm going to close in a way that's a little bit different today. And I'm going to read, um, not quite all, just because of time, uh, Psalm 145. This is a psalm of praise written by King David. And what you're going to notice as I read it is all of the verbs or the words that talk about proclaiming. This is a, I will not be ashamed to tell, to sing, to extol, to speak, uh, all of these words. And so as I read this, if you want to, you'll see the words highlighted on the screen, but notice how many times this is repeated. Or if you need to, just close your eyes and let the words come over you. And this is our prayer for us today, that we would be people who are unashamed, expressive with boldness of the mountaintop moments, whatever size they are, as we see them and feel God in them. So Psalm 145, I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. No one can, his greatness, no one can fathom. One generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. They speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty. I will meditate on your wonderful works. They tell of the power of your awesome works. I will proclaim your great deeds. They celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. All your works praise you, Lord. Your faithful people extol you. They tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might so that all people may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Going ahead to verse 21, my mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. Let every creature praise his holy name forever and ever. Let's pray. God, I want to be a person who not only slows down enough to notice when I've come upon a mountaintop, but then stops there for a hot second before I continue on and just pause to gain um, the worshipful, expressive gratitude in whatever way that is. If it's speaking of what you've done, is it noticing it to you and to others? It's just a celebration moment. May we not miss the mountaintop moments, but instead have them as moments that encourage us not to just to enjoy them ourselves, but to sing and tell and uh, share your goodness in the big and little moments. We know you hear and see our prayers. And sometimes it's really hard when the waiting and the work and the wondering is lasting so long. But God, we want to see you and never be ashamed of this good news of reconciliation and kingdom goodness that we have received through Christ Jesus. Help us to grow in boldness and expressiveness in making much of who you are. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. We love to keep the conversation going. Find a weekly gathering or gospel community in a neighborhood near you. To find out more, check us out online at missiodechicago.com.